Please pray with me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So I'm in a class on sacramental theology this semester, which I promise is actually much more interesting than it sounds. And during the first week of class, our assigned readings were the different passion narratives from each gospel. I, like I'm sure many of us, grew up hearing these stories recycled year after year after year, and I didn't think reading them again would be particularly helpful. But in class, my professor reminded us that because we're all so familiar with these stories, and we know the ending, that it's actually quite easy for us to forget that we're reading a historical account of a man's wrongful trial and execution. We can take what happened to Jesus and how it happened for granted, but when we really look at it square in the face, it's kind of chilling to read these stories. As Kent said last week, I really like that we're not saving these stories for Holy Week. I think reading them during Lent reminds us why we observe Lent in the first place, to remember the life and wrongful death and resurrection of a person who was fully divine, yes, but also fully human. This story of Jesus' trial before Annas is a bit of an odd one, if only because John is the only gospel that mentions it at all. Let's put ourselves into the story. Now, Jesus has just been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. His disciples have scattered. People are afraid. No one really knows what's going on. By the time Jesus is brought to Annas, it's probably two or three in the morning and freezing cold. The author tells us that one disciple, who's probably John, is recognized by the high priest and actually gets to go inside with Jesus, probably because of some sort of family connection, while Peter is left outside in the courtyard. And we're given this masterful narrative of Jesus inside and Peter outside, switching back and forth a few times. Now, from my own book nerd point of view, the way that John builds this drama is absolutely worthy of a top-selling legal thriller. The stakes are high, things are really tense. Everyone is cold, everyone is tired, everyone is hungry too. And who among us hasn't done or said something we regret when we're cold, tired, and hungry? So Jesus, cold, tired, and yes, probably hungry, is bound and brought before Annas, the former high priest and so a member of the temple leadership community that has already made its severe disapproval of him very clear. Even though this is the only gospel in which we hear about this initial trial of Jesus before Annas, I think it's so important. We're more familiar with Jesus' trial in front of Pontius Pilate, which is explicitly political. Pilate is part of the Roman leadership, and so his chief concern is that Jesus is walking around with the title King of the Jews. Pilate is afraid that Jesus is trying to overthrow the Roman government, and he tries him for treason. But Annas isn't really concerned with treason or anything that political. He's just kind of asking Jesus really broadly to testify to the last three years of his life. His entire ministry, his teachings, his followers, all of it. And Jesus responds with a little sass, which I love, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said to them. They know what I said. 
It's a comment that actually gets him a slap across the face. Jesus is witnessing openly to everything he's ever said, done, and taught, saying, it's all out in the open. I've never hidden anything. And crucially, he's defending his disciples here, telling Annas, ask those who heard what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus is saying that my message and my ministry are here in my people. My teaching lives openly in them. So why are you acting as if I'm hiding something? And while Jesus is inside acting as a witness for his disciples, even as he himself is on trial, Peter is outside in the dark, cold courtyard. I envision a lot of people standing around muttering, wrapping themselves in cloaks, and talking about all the drama going on inside the house. Peter's trying to keep a low profile. He's huddled around this dull charcoal fire on the ground, attempting to keep warm and blend in with the law enforcement around him. And as I read this text, I was particularly struck by Peter's first denial to a girl who was a slave in the household. This first denial is just, it's so easy for him. The girl basically, basically asks him, you're not with that guy inside, are you? Peter's not really in danger here. The girl isn't physically threatening to him. There's no warrant out for his arrest. If there were, he'd have been arrested already. The disciple inside with Jesus is clearly not hiding anything, and he's not in police custody. Peter has no good reason to deny that he's with Jesus, and yet he still does. Now, when I realized that, I thought, oh, crap. (laughs) Because how many times have we denied something really important to us simply because it was just easier than telling the whole truth? In the other Gospels, Peter says, I do not know the man in this scene, denying that he even knows Jesus. But in John, Peter is saying that he's not with Jesus, that he's not a disciple. He's denying everything that that identity of discipleship means and stands for. Now, I'm finding in diving into these Bible stories and writing sermons that the thing I get most annoyed at or feel most uncomfortable about is definitely the thing I need to preach about. Because how many times have I been Peter? Have we all been Peter? When have we, like Peter, been super into the good parts of discipleship, but not necessarily the scary parts, the parts that require even a little bit of bravery? Denying Jesus, denying discipleship, probably doesn't look like a lie in the 2 a.m. cold of a courtyard for most of us in our daily lives. But I think it's always there, more often than we would like to think. I know it is for me. And just as Peter slipped into a lie so easily, even when there wasn't much at stake for him in doing so, I think of how our denial of discipleship is often chillingly easy For example, I think of how many times I've responded dishonestly to the question, are you, like, religious? Answering back something along the lines of, well, yeah, but not that much, or, well, I'm not that kind of religious, rather than just responding, yes, I am. I think about the times I've downplayed what I'm studying in divinity school, emphasizing that I'm studying religion and politics, because it's just easier than getting into the complicated description of ministry and having to again answer that, yes, I am religious. For some of us, it might look like downplaying where we spend our Sunday mornings rather than simply saying, actually, I have church in the morning. 
Can we hang out in the afternoon instead? Just this Thursday, I was buying groceries to make the soup for our Lenten worship, which you should all come to on Thursday evenings. (laughs) And the two cashiers inquired after my 12 cans of tomatoes, three bags of lentils, and eight cartons of vegetable stock. I told them I worked at a church, and I could see their mannerisms change a little bit. Their eyes became a bit more judgmental, a little more unsure, as if I were going to start evangelizing on the spot or something. You know the look, right? Yeah, (laughs) we've all experienced it. And so, because it was easier and I wanted to avoid those judgmental looks, I followed up with, we're hosting a dinner party. Why couldn't I have just been honest and said it was actually a worship service? I walked away mad and really disappointed with myself. But (laughs) messing up also made me realize just how much I actually had to write about in this sermon. Boldly owning discipleship also means claiming and standing up for the things that Jesus taught. It means loving our neighbors and our enemies. It means speaking up for the poor, marginalized, and vulnerable, even when it's hard. And it is hard. How many times have we heard a friend, family member, or coworker say something racist or homophobic and kept our mouths shut just because it was easier not to say anything? Because saying something would make it into a thing or a problem, and so many of us are really naturally conflict-averse. I know when I experience this, nothing is really at stake for me, and yet I still sometimes don't act. Just like nothing was really at stake for Peter when he first denied following Jesus to the slave girl. So often we think we're acting out of courtesy or good manners, but we're actually acting out of fear. Fear of rejection, fear of shame, fear of what others might think about us. And fear can be a really ugly place to act out of. I bet, more than fearing harm, Peter denied Jesus because he feared being kicked out of the group huddled around that dim fire, feared being cast out of the circle and into the cold. How often have we failed to claim and defend our beliefs, all for the sake of maintaining the warmth of others toward us? What I also love about John's telling of this story is that Peter doesn't have a violent emotional reaction like he does in the other Gospels. Instead of screaming and cursing at the people around him or bursting into tears upon his final denial, the story simply ends with the line, Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, the cock crew. What I love about this telling and how utterly undramatic it is is that I think that's what denial of discipleship is often like in our own lives. It's quiet, it's it's here, and it can eat away at us because we know that we messed up. Just last week, I was walking through Harvard Square, and there was a woman experiencing homelessness standing in the middle of the sidewalk, her feet planted but her body kind of swaying precariously. She was muttering to herself, and on the ground around her, it looked like her bag had spilled. Things as random as a perfume bottle and a wrench were scattered, and she probably could have used some help. But my nervousness, my anxiety over doing or saying the wrong thing, my unsureness of how to act, kept my feet moving forward and my eyes averted. And as I walked away, I felt that pit in my stomach, that shame over what you didn't do that you just can't shake. Do you ever get that? It's the cock crowing. In ignoring that woman, I was failing to bear witness 
Just as we fail to bear witness when we don't call someone out for a racist comment, or maybe when we stop paying attention to the news and what's going on in the world around us because it's overwhelming and we might have the privilege of being able to ignore it that others simply don't. That is failing to bear witness to our own discipleship and the teachings of Christianity. While Jesus stood inside, witnessing to his life's work and to the, to the disciples who loved him, Peter stood just outside, denying that same discipleship out of fear and shame. And I can't blame him because it's so easy to do. But I know we can do better. Let's really think about what it means to be a witness and how we might claim that discipleship in the many ways it manifests in our daily lives. It doesn't need to be dramatic. It doesn't need to be showy. Maybe it means saying something if we see a woman getting catcalled on the street or correcting our uncle when he uses an outdated and offensive term. Maybe it means facing the pain and suffering of the world around us and not tuning it out just because it's overwhelming, but actually witnessing to it. Maybe it means actively and proudly telling our friends and acquaintances where we go on Sunday mornings and inviting them to come along with us. What would it look like to proudly claim the things that are important to us, to claim discipleship in a way that Peter simply couldn't? What would it feel like? In this story, Jesus witnesses to us, acknowledges that his teachings live on in us. I pray that we continue to work hard to be worthy of that witness. Amen.